Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and tonight we're diving right back into our military history of modern Israel. It's the Suez Crisis of 1956. I'm glad to be back into the bunker recording. My family and my boss seem to be in a covert conspiracy to ruin my life. The other day I came home from work and all my plumbing was backed up. A tidal wave of sewage water had deluged into the bunker. I'm looking at a hole where the ceiling tiles used to be as I speak these words. I asked my son, what the hell, Michael, what happened? And he answered me in kindergarten pig Latin. Thomas go in cave, he go on adventure. Apparently, he flushed Thomas the train engine down the toilet, destroying my plumbing in the process. The water overflowed, don't ask me how. In two days of fighting with my wife, I've yet to uncover any rational reason why the water wasn't turned off to the toilet. I learned a lot about my own personal failings, stupid literary dreams, and lack of ambition, however. So I've been doing some deep cleaning the last couple of days, and at the same time, my boss decided to give me a verbal vasectomy. But duty calls, and the show won't wait, so we're diving back into the deep end. But before we go, rooting through the meat grinder, I've got to thank Megan and Rich from Irvine, California, for buying us around. Megan and Rich say they like to listen to the show when they go to the beach. I want you guys to know I really wish I was at the beach with you. I really do. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the make a donation button. Oh, and Rich, drink one for me. During the seven years since the various armistice agreements were signed in 1949, relations between Israel and her neighbors began to deteriorate. The Arab world was in turmoil. King Abdullah of Jordan, who had sincerely desired peace with Israel, was assassinated on the steps of the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. In Egypt, the Prime Minister was assassinated in the aftermath of the last war with Israel. In 1949, the Syrian government was overthrown by General Husni al-Zayim, who himself was overturned two years later. In Egypt, a group of officers led by Lieutenant Colonel Gamal Abd al-Nasser seized control of the government in a military coup. From that point on, Nasser began to agitate for pan-Arab nationalism throughout the Middle East. The Jordanian government drifted into Nasser's orbit and, starting in 1954, armed militants began making incursions into Israel from Jordan. In 1955, Egypt's military was completely overhauled with modern weapons from Czechoslovakia. Nasser openly boasted of destroying Israel with these new forces, which included over 200 modern warplanes and thousands of modern artillery and armored vehicles. Nasser negotiated the evacuation of British troops from the Sinai Canal, one of the most important shipping routes in the world. The British had been stationed there for over 80 years. Next, Nasser sought to play the United States and the Soviet Union against one another in order to secure a loan to construct a dam that would provide electricity to his country. His attempt to negotiate with the Soviet Union led the United States to withdraw the American offer to finance the dam. Consequently, Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal on July 27, 1956. Now, this was a huge deal. The Suez Canal is a vital link in international commerce. A modern historian explains what happened next. Quote, Seeing the seizure of the canal as a threat to their strategic interests, including their oil supply routes, the British and French began to prepare contingency plans. 
Forces were moved from Malta and Cyprus to seize back the canal and ultimately force Nasser out. At the same time, Israel was convinced that Nasser was heading towards an all-out war with the Jewish state. At the same time, Islamic guerrilla attacks were becoming more common in Israel itself. Over 260 Israelis were killed or wounded in 1955 alone. End quote. Now, Israel hadn't just been sitting on her hands for the past seven years. She was constantly preparing for war, a beehive of activity. Part of that preparation was setting up one of the most unique conscript systems in the modern world. Howard Sacker describes the system of compulsory military service in Israel during the 1950s. Quote, in 1949, the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, enacted a comprehensive defense service law that established the legal foundation of Israel's citizen army. Consequently, the armed forces were divided essentially into a regular service and a reserve. The regular service consisted of a limited number of commissioned and non-commissioned officers as well as conscripts. The conscripts included all men and women who had reached the age of 18. Men were obliged to serve for 26 months. Women for 20. Men were assigned to combat training. Women were assigned to duty as clerks, typists, drivers, signalers, and even as teachers and social workers. Upon completion of their terms, the draftees entered the reserve service, composed of all able-bodied men under 45 and unmarried women under 35. Men under 40 were called up for an uninterrupted month of refresher training each year, older men for two weeks of training. Each age group also reported for duty one day a month. All men between the ages of 45 and 49 constituted the civil defense, with training obligations of its own. In later years, the periods of conscript and reserve service was lengthened even further. Mobilization became an integral part of Israel's everyday life. The child saw his father putting on his uniform to go to the army for a day every month and for a month every year. His older brother or sister would be in the regular army at 18. If the child lived in a new development center, the teacher would probably be a female conscript completing her national service. In addition, all high school students belonged to GADNA, a paramilitary organization that laid much emphasis on sports, physical training, seamanship, and marksmanship. In short, virtually every Israeli was a soldier on either active or reserve status. End quote. Israel had become a nation at arms, a nation of citizen warriors, an anti-Semite's worst nightmare. By 1956, Israel had also made a remarkable achievement for any modern military. It had reduced the proportion of combatants to non-combatants in the armed forces to 50%, the highest proportion of any army in the world. Most armies require large background personnel in order to function. Clerks, cooks, drivers, stormtroopers who know how to install toilet mains, but not Israel. Her armed forces operated on short interior lines and were structured for quick, intensive bursts of warfare. Put succinctly, the Israeli war machine was lean and mean. And during the mid-1950s, the Israeli army wasn't just training for war. They were actually using the terrorist threat to train in real warlike environments. When an Arabic guerrilla snuck into Israel and caused damage, the Israelis responded with punitive raids on nearby Arab villages, thereby learning essential combat skills in the process. For example, in early 1955, Egypt was strangling the Israeli economy. They closed the Suez Canal to Israeli shipping. They led an ongoing blockade of the Gulf of Aqaba and the southernmost port of Israel, further straining Israeli shipping by choking off access to the Red Sea. And Egypt directed a large number of guerrilla attacks into Israel itself. 
Israeli Prime Minister Ben-Gurion's response was a sledgehammer. On February 28th, he unleashed an entire brigade on the unsuspecting Egyptians. The Israelis assaulted the Egyptian military headquarters in Gaza, literally exploding numerous buildings into rubble, killing 38 Egyptian troops and wounding a further 24 in the process, needless to say. It was a huge blow to the prestige of Nasser, who prided himself on leading the Arab world and standing strong against what he viewed as the Israeli crusader state. Nasser shook his head. When the reports came in of the Jewish state's attack, he couldn't believe it. He later said, February 28th was a turning point. This disaster was the alarm bell. We at once started to examine the significance of peace and the balance of power in the area. Nasser began making plans, and when the United States rescinded a loan for Egyptian development, he sprung his trap. He nationalized the Suez Canal, a vital waterway for the entire global economy, but especially for Western Europe. Now the entire world's economic system was at the whim of one colonel. The canal's nationalization was widely popular throughout Egypt. Nasser became a national hero and his reputation in the Arab world skyrocketed. Meanwhile, leaders in France and Britain were eating their hands. They considered control of the canal as vital to their national interests. Something had to be done and they did what the Western world always does. They held a conference. And at the conference, the major seafaring powers decided Egypt was due a fair share of the canal proceeds, but at the same time, control, sovereignty, of the waterway should be under international control, by which they meant Western control. I should point out that because of Nasser's power move, the major powers were willing to concede more revenue from the canal to the Egyptian people. It's a clear case of power leading to recognition. But Nasser was riding high. He was in no mood for compromise with the decadent West. He rejected the proposals. All the revenue from the canal would be his. And from his control of the canal, how many endless millions would flow into his pockets. Now that he had the golden goose, he wasn't about to share the eggs. After this rejection, English and French leaders met to discuss military intervention. In a matter of weeks, they came up with the following plan. Quote, the plans were for Britain to contribute the bomber force and part of the fighter force as well as 50,000 men. The French, in turn, would contribute several fighter squadrons and 30,000 men. D-Day was tentatively set for October 20th. It was the French who initially reached out to Israel, asking if the Israelis were prepared to fight alongside Britain in war against Egypt. End quote. The Israelis couldn't believe the proposal. They actually had been planning an intervention against Egypt for months, and now two great powers were willing to help them do it. Praise Yahweh. The plan was for the Israeli attack through Sinai to act as a pretext for an allied invasion. An Israeli ground attack through Sinai would enable the British and French to seize the canal in order to protect both the canal and keep peace between the two opposing sides, Egypt and Israel. This way, French and British intervention in Egypt would seem to be securing world peace. In actual fact, it was all a lie, a pre-planned spectacle for world opinion. Such is the world we live in, a world where wars are deliberately instigated by the very people who feign total ignorance about their real intentions. A world where states constantly lie to one another, like young men lying to women about their noble intentions when the reality starts and stops in the delights of the bedroom. In late September, French military aid began flowing into Israel. Jet aircraft, 100 medium tanks, 300 half-tracks, 50 tank transporters, 300 trucks, 1,000 artillery pieces, transport planes, a general's dream come true. The Israeli poet Nathan Alterman 
Watch the unloading of the undreamed of military equipment and pinned these lines. Perhaps this is a night of dreams, but wide awake and what I saw was the melting away of the terror gap between us and the forces of destruction. Iron comes on steadily and the bowels of the earth did tremble, end quote. The technology gap between Israel and her Soviet-supplied neighbors was shrinking. Soon, the Israelis would drive the Egyptian army out of Sinai, destroying the guerrilla bases in Gaza and opening up the Strait of Tehran to Israeli shipping. Soon, Israel would achieve total security. In late October, the final plan was set. A modern historian explains, quote, Israel would strike first on October 29th, dropping paratroops east of the canal area and would announce the operation over the radio. Britain and France would then issue a joint ultimatum to Israel and Egypt to cease military activity. Israel would accept, but would not observe, the ceasefire until its troops advanced to a line 10 miles from the canal. Egypt would almost certainly reject the Allied conditions. At that point, British and French air units would attack Egyptian airfields, destroying Nasser's planes on the ground. Finally, Allied troops would land along the canal and seize the waterway in order to, quote, preserve the peace, end quote, between the two sides. France was obligated to defend Israel's interests in the United Nations. Israel had taken on quite a challenge. For one thing, the Sinai region was exceedingly large, 24,000 square miles of desolation inhabited by about 40,000 nomads. Another problem was the newly equipped Egyptian army and air force. The Egyptian army comprised more than 100,000 men equipped with first-rate weapons. But the Egyptians had scoffed at their western advisors when they suggested the Egyptians create a defensive line miles away from the Israeli border. Ho oh, ho no. Nasser wanted his new, glimmering army to guard the guerrilla bases in Gaza and threaten the Israelis in their own homeland. Accordingly, he deployed his military astride the Israeli border, concentrating obscene amounts of material and resources in Gaza, which one look at a map will show you is a fool's masterstroke, a paragon of idiocy. Thousands would die for one man's folly. To be human is to know pain. To be human is to be enmeshed in obligations. To be human is a great gamble. One die roll and you're conscripted in the poorly led Egyptian army facing down death in the Gaza Strip. Another die roll and you're an unearned millionaire enjoying the ministrations of a mistress in Washington, D.C. John Rawls spilled rivers of ink attempting to rationally describe the great gamble, but all he got was a theory no one really believes in. Anyway... Howard Sacker details the inadequacy of Egypt's military disposition this way, quote, For defense against a surprise Israeli attack, the Egyptian defense line was shockingly inadequate. Tied down to static coastal hedgehogs at the end of a long and vulnerable supply line, the Egyptian army was a mailed fist on an exposed and feeble arm. Additionally, once the Suez crisis broke, the Egyptians pulled their best units away from the Israeli border to guard the canal, Sinai. All 24,000 miles of it was left open, ineptly guarded by second-string units. End quote. Israel mobilized approximately 90,000 men for the coming struggle. The assault would take place on three main fronts, one in the south, one in the center, and one in the north of the Sinai region, you can always see those maps on thebattlecast.com. The attack in the south would come first. Haim Herzog recounts the sputtering start of a war that upturned world diplomatic opinion this way, quote, 
Usually, wars begin with a major offensive on a number of fronts, but the Sinai War does not fall into the category of a war that exploded into being. On the contrary, it started quietly and hesitantly. For the first 24 hours, Egypt was not even certain there was in fact a war, or merely yet another small reprisal raid. This opening was adopted so as to give the Israelis an opportunity to call off the operation and withdraw their forces should it become evident that her Anglo-French allies were not implementing their part of the plan, end quote. At 3.30 p.m. on October 29th, the southern assault was unleashed. A squadron of Israeli transport planes skimmed the earth at 500 feet altitude, flying under the enemy radar detection. Then, the hulking transport planes climbed 1,500 feet towards the clouds, where the paratroop battalions jumped into the orange sun-setting sky. The Egyptian radar operators spilled coffee on themselves when they suddenly saw scores of Israeli transport planes appear on their screen, seemingly out of nowhere. Nowhere, like a magic trick. Abracadabra. The Israeli target was the Mitla Pass, a key pass through the mountains which blocked the Israelis from reaching the canal. Mitla Pass was just 30 miles away from the bottom of the Suez Canal, so when these paratroopers hit the ground, they were cut off and in the middle of nowhere. Reinforcements were hundreds of miles away. In the meantime, all they could do was bite their cheeks and wait. Meanwhile, the 202nd Paratroop Brigade under Colonel Ariel Sharon moved into Sinai. Its objective was to link up with the troops already at the Mitla Pass. It was a race against time. Many of Sharon's vehicles and artillery became bogged down in the sand, so he left them behind. Time was everything. Nothing could stand in the way of reaching his objective. He had to get to the paratroopers at Mitla in 24 hours. The world conspired to stop him, but Sharon spit at the world and kept on going. Still, even with his unrelenting willpower, Sharon was behind schedule. The Sinai desert conditions were doing more fighting for the Egyptians than the Egyptian army itself. At the end of the day, Nasser became aware that he was facing a major Israeli assault. He ordered reinforcements across the canal to meet the blow. By midnight, an entire armored brigade was heading straight for Mitla, and the heavy weaponless Israeli paratroopers guarding that essential pass. Simultaneously, Nasser called on other Arab states to invade Israel. It would take days to mobilize the forces of Jordan and Syria, and in the meantime, Egypt was on its own, facing down nearly 100,000 highly motivated and Western-supplied Israelis. The Israeli paratroopers at Mitla Pass were highly vulnerable, and Ariel Sharon knew it. His men met little opposition aside from the horrible terrain on their blitzkrieg across the region. They didn't lose one man. The Egyptians weren't so lucky. Many Arabs were cut down when they crossed paths with the Israelis. An eyewitness, Benny Broida, recounts his first kill this way, quote, Broida shot and killed a fleeing soldier. He then went over to the dead soldier who turned out to be an older man with several battle decorations. From the dead man's pocket, Broida took out a letter with a photograph of an infant. Someone who knew Arabic told me it was a letter from his wife who had written, Since you were home, the boy has already learned how to walk and talk. When the letter was translated for me, I had tears in my eyes. But that's war. That's just war. End quote. At 10.30 p.m. on October 30th, Sharon reached the Mitla Pass. That's when the next political theater stage of the war was initiated. Ben Gurion approved the following statement, which was released on October 30th. Quote, Israeli defense forces entered and engaged guerrilla units in the Sinai Peninsula and seized positions in the vicinity of the Suez Canal. 
This action ends the Egyptian assault on Israeli transport on land and sea, destined to cause destruction and the denial of a peaceful life to Israel's citizens, end quote. It was just the pretext the French and British had been waiting for. Immediately following the announcement, the French and British issued their demands to both Israel and Egypt to withdraw, respectively, 10 miles east and west of the canal. This ultimatum clearly was fake in its alleged purpose of separating the combatants because it allowed Israel, the invader, to advance to a distance of 10 miles east of the canal, a massive violation of Egyptian territorial integrity. Leaders in Africa and Asia were aghast to them. This reeked of stank imperialism. Israel, of course, agreed to comply with the ultimatum, as they had prearranged. Predictably, Nasser rejected it. Meanwhile, in the skies above Sinai, the Israeli Air Force proud without hindrance. The way a mighty eagle majestically and imperially soars above your own backyard, oblivious to everything else, king of the sky, just so. Israeli air units decimated Egyptian armored columns entering Sinai. At the same time, Sharon sent a combat group into the Mitla Pass. They walked into a bloodbath. The faceless mountains hid countless makeshift bunkers and caves, which sent devastating fire into the Israelis, knocking out several vehicles and forcing the attack to an abrupt halt. Haim Herzog picks up the story. At noon on October 31st, the combat team went into the pass. On entering the pass, the unit encountered heavy, concentrated fire from emplacements on both sides, but nevertheless, the team pressed on. Within minutes, the reconnaissance force was drawn into a bitter battle. Three half-tracks were hit and immobilized. The crews found cover by the side of the road and were trapped, unable to advance or retreat, the men making love to the ground in order to avoid getting their heads blown off. The remainder of the advance guard, including two tanks, raced through the pass under murderous fire, while the rear section of the force came under Egyptian aerial attack. The fuel trucks went up in flames. For seven hours, the paratroopers fought a desperate battle. The Israelis began laying down a blanket of mortar fire on the ridges around them. Sharon sent reinforcements into the pressure cooker to get his men out. The reinforcements scrambled up the sides of the pass, taking each emplacement and cave in brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat. In the early evening, in order to create a diversion, one Israeli soldier volunteered to drive a jeep through the pass. His name was Yehuda Kandror, and he didn't make it. He gave his life for his comrades and his people. Benny Broida, a radio operator, remembers when Yehuda left for his ride into the very teeth of death itself. Quote, I look at Yehuda when I see that he's going. I give him a strange look. Even now, when I talk about it after 50 years, I get the chills. You're with someone for a few days, you become pals, friends, you know. And then you realize he's going to his death, and Yehuda went. He was pale, and his jaws were locked tight, as if he could already see his own death in the very distance he was about to drive into. I didn't know him before, but when I met him, I said to myself that I had run into a really good guy. He was a real champ, a guy who knew how to get along with his comrades, end quote. They found Yehuda's body perforated with bullet holes. You could see through the holes in the chest as if small worms had burrowed through the bloody flesh and bones of his body. 38 Israeli paratroopers died and 120 were wounded in the combat at Mitla Pass. About 200 Egyptian soldiers also fell. The rest of the Egyptians withdrew and escaped to the banks of the canal. The days of easy victories were over. For the Israelis, no more would Israelis simply joyride from victory to victory, posing for photographs alongside their jeeps like they were on a safari. 
It took hours for Sharon's infantry to clear the Egyptians from the defenses and finally secure the withdrawal of their trapped comrades. It was a bloody and needless assault. On October 31st, French and British squadrons began their bombardment of Egyptian airfields near the canal. Most of the Egyptian air force was destroyed on the ground, priceless equipment bursting into flames as the surrounding Egyptian peasants who lived without electricity and running water looked on as millions of their dollars were burned away. And much of Nasser's high talk burned away with them. Then the phone rang in Nasser's office. He picked it up. It was Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union. At first... Nasser attempted to ask for aid, but he was quickly cut off. Khrushchev, the man who provided Nasser with almost all of his military and economic aid, forthrightly told Nasser to make peace with France and the United Kingdom. There would be no military support from Moscow. He was cut off like an errant son who pisses away his inheritance. Jordan and Syria likewise called for Nasser to come to terms with the Jewish state. But Nasser was not ready to just quit. He would block the Israeli thrust and then counter when the time was right. Accordingly, he withdrew all of his forces to the canal in order to defend his one and only golden goose. He didn't need the Soviet Union or the bloody West if he had the canal. The canal and its money would give him the means to develop his nation without the meddling interference from the North. But he had to protect it first at all costs. Now this withdrawal of Egyptian forces from Sinai was a godsend for the Israelis. The one-eyed Israeli chief of staff, Moshe Dayan, couldn't believe it. Now was the time to strike and provide defensible borders for Israel forever. Therefore, he sent in the next massive prong in his conquest of the Sinai, the 7th Armored Brigade. It burst through the border almost unopposed, heading towards the massive Egyptian defensive complex at Abu Agela, almost smack in the middle of the Sinai region. Capture of Abu Agela would ensure Israeli domination of central Sinai and open the way for another major assault on the canal itself. The fortress was reached on October 31st. The armored vehicles probed the bristling Egyptian hedgehog and they promptly got their snouts bit off. Haim Herzog explains, quote, because it served as the Egyptian area command headquarters, Abu Agela was a vast and intricate system of camps and bunkers surrounded by barbed wire, minefields, and pre-ranged artillery killing grounds, extending a distance of seven miles in any direction. When the Israeli half-tracks reached within two miles of the complex, the Egyptian defenses opened with a concentrated artillery barrage. The half-tracks continued their advance while the tanks covered them. They made some progress, but the hedgehog still held. On October 31st, the Israelis assaulted the Rufa Dam complex, a key mini-fortress within the wider Abu Agela complex. The tanks moved forward at sunset in a cloud of dust in the failing light. They ran straight into concentrated anti-tank fire. As darkness fell, the battle continued, illuminated by burning ammunition and vehicles, a playground of hell. It was like fighting in the middle of a fireworks display. The Rufa Dam finally fell, but the exhausted Israelis were unable to clear the remaining strong points in the Abu Agela complex, end quote. After this failure, the Israelis decided to simply bypass the massive fortress and push on, cutting off the Egyptians from resupply. It worked. Dion's central attack easily captured two Egyptian bases and engaged in a running battle against the tail of the withdrawing Egyptian forces, inflicting a fair number of casualties on the fleeing Arabs. 
Seeing that they were cut off, the Egyptians holed up in the Abu Agela fortress decided to withdraw while they still could. Howard Sacker recounts what happened next, quote, The Egyptian commander simply informed his 3,000 flabbergasted troops that it was every man for himself, and he urged them to make their way across the sand ocean to the canal 52 miles away on foot. It would be wrong to call it a plan. It was more like a sentence to a slow and agonizing death, end quote. While all this was going on, Dion also unleashed a heavy attack on Rafa. The key to the El Arish Highway, which supplied the Gaza Strip, and much of the 10,000-man strong Egyptian forward units occupying the Strip. If the Israelis could take and hold Rafa, the Egyptians in Gaza would be surrounded and cut off, one way or the other. In one day or one month, they would wither on the vine they had to. Rafa was the obvious target of an Israeli attack. It was the one place the Egyptians were ready to meet the Jewish state in open combat. There would be no surprise this time, just brutal, head-on fighting. The attack began on the night of October 30th. Both sides suffered high casualties. In the end, Israeli air superiority won the day. By 7.30 in the morning, the desolated shell of a town formerly called Rafa was in Israeli hands. The Israelis pressed on, moving inland towards the canal while meeting little opposition. This is in the north of the Sinai region. For the next two days, the Israelis pushed on all the way to within sight of the canal itself. The only thing that held up their advance was the capture of 385 Soviet manufactured vehicles and thousands upon thousands of Egyptian prisoners. At almost the same time, Israeli tanks in the center of Sinai reached the canal. By nightfall of November 2nd, the Israeli army was in full possession of the three lines of communication extending through the peninsula from east to west and was systematically destroying the remaining guerrilla bases in Gaza. The guerrillas themselves were rounded up from prepared lists and shot on the spot where they were captured, cut down without a trial. Meanwhile, the Israelis were gathering together thousands of prisoners of war. Benny Broida remembers what happened to some of the prisoners he captured. Quote, There were a few prisoners. A barbed wire fence was erected and the prisoners were kept inside it. Suddenly, a MiG-19 approached and fired at us. One of the shells hit one of the prisoners and tore him to shreds. His flesh actually looked like shredded paper covered in pasta sauce. The prisoners began to go wild, and the guys shot them and killed them all, about 10 people in total, end quote. Now, while everything I just told you was going on, the Israelis also sent 1,800 men to the southern tip of the peninsula itself. They encountered little opposition from the Egyptians, but the unforgiving terrain wrecked their trucks and armor. Boulders often had blocked their advance and had to be dynamited. Still, by November 4th, all of southern Sinai was in Israeli hands. The men had traveled 1,400 miles in less than a week. The net result of the Israeli attack was a stunning Israeli military victory. Howard Sacker details the results of the short Sinai conflict like this, quote, The Sinai War was over. In its initial stages, the opposing forces had been roughly equal, but the quality of Israeli manpower on all levels was far higher. The officers had led bravely and had suffered half the army's casualties, at a cost of 180 men killed and four captured, of 20 planes and some 2,000 worn-out vehicles. Israel, in essentially a 100-hour campaign, had occupied the whole of the Sinai region and the Gaza Strip, had shattered three Egyptian divisions, killed 2,000 of the enemy, and taken nearly 6,000 prisoners. In addition, Israeli forces had captured war material valued at over $50 million, including 7,000 tons of ammunition 
and half a million gallons of fuel, 200 artillery pieces, 100 tanks, over 1,000 vehicles, and an Egyptian frigate. It was a total military victory, but then world affairs intruded. The rest of the world wasn't as impressed at the Israeli campaign as the Israelis were themselves, end quote. And at the United Nations, there was hell to pay. That's where the blowback started. The angered members of the UN bypassed Anglo-French vetoes on the Security Council by transferring the crisis to the General Assembly, and the Egyptians weren't utterly defeated. They were still on the field, still ready for more blows. This won them respect throughout the Third World. The Egyptians had gone toe-to-toe with the Israelis, the British, and the French, and they were still in the ring, still ready to fight. Jason Thompson picks up the story in his History of Egypt, quote, Though defeated, Egyptian forces fought tenaciously, winning sympathy around the world. The Egyptians also sank ships in the canal, blocking it and cutting oil shipments to Europe. International opinion was overwhelmingly critical of the invasion. The Soviet Union threatened a nuclear attack on London, but more realistically, used the commotion in the Middle East to distract attention while it brutally crushed an uprising in its satellite state, Hungary, which I, Luke Wolf, told you about in the episode on the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. Now, the United Nations and the United States condemned the British, French, and Israeli actions. President Eisenhower complained, quote, The U.S. was not consulted in any phase of these actions, which can scarcely be reconciled with the principles and purpose of the United Nations. The Israeli ambassador met with John Foster Dulles, the United States Secretary of State, and I think their meeting helps us understand the American mentality. Many American leaders really believe in a liberal world order. It's not some conspiracy. They actually believe in it. And they're willing to tolerate dictators like Nasser to prove it. Dulles told the Israeli ambassador, quote, Look, I'm terribly torn. No one could be happier than I am that Nasser has been beaten. Since spring, I've had only too good cause to detest the man. Yet, can we accept this good end when it is achieved by means that violate the United Nations Charter? If we did that, the United Nations would collapse, so I am forced to turn back to support international law and the Charter, end quote. As Noam Chomsky and Howard Sacker notes, Dulles and Eisenhower went on to exert enormous pressure on Israel to withdraw from Sinai. They believed in international law. This heartfelt belief in the United Nations and international law explains so much of American political leaders' actions. It's been the chiliastic desire of our leaders, and many of them, though not all, pursued it at all costs. They were willing to ignore public opinion, to meet the demands of dictators, to provide foreign aid to ingrates in a desperate attempt to foster international law. It was, and it still is, the hope of many wealthy Ivy League politicians. The system they created is straining now, but it's strained before. It's not broken yet, but there are cracks, and it seems to me our leading politicians are less sure of themselves than they used to be. Over 15 years of endless war in the Middle East will do that for you. Anyway, French and British paratroopers finally intervened on November 5th. On November 6th, Allied ships shelled Port Said. The town surrendered that afternoon. Immediately, an armored column set off for Suez City. The British made it to within 25 miles of that vital objective. Suez City is located at the southern end of the canal, but they never made it. Instead, London buckled like a hen-pecked husband under pressure. The United Nations had achieved with their mouths what the Egyptians couldn't do in the field. 
The English announced they were willing to abide by the ceasefire. The advance was halted. The canal was not taken. Millions of dollars were wasted. Hundreds of lives were taken, and Britain's leaders refused to take the 25 miles to complete their objectives. This capitulation was in stark contrast to Ben-Gurion, who responded to Soviet threats like a boss. He was a real statesman. The Soviet Union issued a warning to Ben-Gurion that read, quote, Israel is playing with the fate of the whole world, with the fate of its own people. It is sowing hatred of the state of Israel among the peoples of the East. Its actions are putting a question mark on the very existence of Israel as a state. We suggest that the government of Israel should weigh its action, as long as there is still time, and stop all military movement against Egypt, end quote. To this, Ben-Gurion responded like a free man, quote, our foreign policy is dictated by our vital interests and by our desire to live in peace, and no foreign factor determines it or will ever determine it in the future, end quote. Here are the words of a real statesman, a statesman who is trying to protect his people, not build a global economy. He's not primarily concerned with ensuring American conglomerates, business contracts in Singapore are honored by Singapore law. He's interested in the vital welfare of his own people. It's a big deal for a small state to stand up to a superpower like this. Ben-Gurion was a worthy son of the Jewish people. Still, British and French leaders weren't so strong-willed. The Soviet Union threatened to crush the warmongers of Britain and France using every kind of modern destructive weapon. The note had the desired effect. The attack was stopped in its tracks, and it wasn't just the Soviet Union leaning on the British. The U.S. got in on the action, too. On November 6th, the British Prime Minister was informed that Britain's urgent loan application for $1 billion from the United States was contingent on a ceasefire on the Suez Canal. That was money the United Kingdom desperately needed, and under the combined effects of extortion and threatened violence, British resolve crumpled. Once again, we see that Carl Schmitt's definition of sovereignty holds true. Sovereign is he who decides. When you are dependent, you cannot decide for yourself what you want to do. And that holds for people as well as states. I want you to be free, listener. And freedom comes from independence. What did Solomon say? The borrower is a slave to the lender. Britain learned that the hard way. Meanwhile, 700 United Nations peacekeepers arrived in the region. On December 22nd, the last British and French troops left Egypt. The United Nations and United States were adamant that Israel must evacuate the entire Sinai region. Everything Israel had worked for would be gone if they did that. The Egyptian-trained guerrillas would be back blowing up Jewish grandmothers within a month. They desperately tried to use diplomacy to hold their front line, but it was no use. A United Nations General Assembly resolution on January 7, 1957, demanded instant Israeli evacuation. Only two nations voted against it. Israel was literally standing alone against the world. And so, the evacuation came. On December 3rd, they pulled back 30 miles. In January, they pulled back even farther. By January 22nd, they had evacuated almost the entire peninsula. The Israelis did retain control of the Gaza Strip, however. Still, this was nothing compared to the massive amount of territory Israel was forced to give back over to her enemies. After the withdrawal, Israel entered into protracted negotiations with Egypt through the auspices of the United Nations, where the Jewish state made even more massive concessions. By March, Israel had withdrawn both from the Gaza Strip and from Sinai. In return, Israel received numerous loans and freedom of navigation on the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. 
The Egyptian blockade had been broken. Israel was more secure than before the conflict. And the war had an immediate effect on Jewish morale, showing them that they could easily defeat their enemies in open combat. Guerrilla activity from Gaza virtually ended. Israeli ships navigated the Red Sea. The Jewish state was a little safer than before. Jason Thompson summarizes the impact the war had on Egyptian foreign relations like this, quote, In retaliation for what became known as the War of the Tripartite Aggression in Egypt, the Egyptian government sequestered all French and British property. Citizens of those countries who were resident in Egypt were ordered to pack one suitcase and depart immediately. Those abroad, as many were during the summer, were not allowed to return. The Suez Canal did not reopen until March 1957. Its closure probably did more economic harm to Britain than to Egypt. Nasser certainly emerged from the crisis, confirmed in power at home, and his reputation was greatly enhanced abroad, end quote. The Sinai campaign also led to the formation of the United Nations Peacekeeping Force. This force would play major roles across the globe from Namibia to the Balkans, and it all started as a consequence of the Sinai conflict. The Sinai conflict shows the danger of trusting in allies. You never really know what they're going to do. How different might the war have been if the British had advanced 25 more miles? How different might the bloody wars of Israel been if the United Nations hadn't forced the Israelis to evacuate the entire Sinai region? But the UN did force Israel to withdraw, and thereby they helped lay the groundwork for next month's installment of the military history of Israel, the Six Days War. And that's another show in the books, kids. I want to thank everyone who's written in lately. If it takes me a while to get back to you, it's because I'm snowed under with work and a boss who's never happy and a wife who's never happy and children who are never happy. All of them apparently dependent on me to make the world utterly perfect. I want to recommend you listen to show number 26 on the Hungarian Revolution because the revolution took place at the exact same time as the Suez Crisis I just described to you. Comparing the two events, Gives you a good idea of how the world really works. Alright, next month we'll be diving right back into the Six Days War. You won't want to miss it. And until then, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good health with good people. Bye. I need this one today. Ugh, that beer hits the spot. I'm drinking Kona Light Blonde Ale. If you've never had a Kona beer, go out, do yourself a favor, and get one. It's like drinking Hawaii. Guys, I can't wait to be with you again next month. I really appreciate it, and I can't wait to bring you many more years of content for free because I love you out there. I really do. Drink one for me. Bye. Bye.